0: Des and Jenny Oatridge served as missionaries for Wycliffe Bible translators in the 1960s. They chose to go to a very small tribe in Papua New Guinea called the Bunamerian People. Des once described the remarkable way that the village came to realize that Jesus. Christ was a real man who lived at a particular time and place on earth. This realization changed their whole attitude toward the gospel message. Their language helper was a man from the village named Sisia. He helped them translate the entire gospel of Matthew, but they had skipped the first 17 verses since it was just a genealogy. But ultimately, they went back when they were done and decided to translate the first 17 verses or so so that the book would actually be complete. When they finished, Sissia said, there's an important meeting tonight for the village, and he told Des, I want you to come and I want you to bring what we worked on today. When Des arrived at the meeting, the room was packed from wall to wall. Everyone looked serious, and Des commented that it was strange that there was so much tension in the room. So Sissia first addressed the villagers. I want you to hear for yourselves the translation we worked on today. Des began reading. These are the ancestors of Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. Des said that no one spoke. Everyone was staring at him silently. When he finished, a village leader said, why didn't you tell us this before? Another man said, no one bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. And with that comment, the tension began to be replaced by excitement. Many began to speak. This record goes back further than ours. Jesus must be a real person. Jesus must have been a real man on this earth. He's he's not white man's magic. What the mission has taught us is real. In the eyes of the Bunamarians, the truth of the scriptures was now beyond doubt because of Matthew's opening genealogy. Jesus was a real man, the true savior of the world who had come to earth to save them from their sins, and they knew this because of a list of Holy Spirit-inspired names. Now, today's passage, our passage, is Luke's genealogy of Jesus. May God bless our time together as we sit under the authority of his word. And may he give us a deeper understanding of the significance and the potential power of these verses. Here then, the word Of the living God, beginning in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Naum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maoth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melkkii, the Son of Adai, the Son of Kosum, the Son of Elmadam, the Son of Ur, the Son of Joshua, the Son of Eleazar, the Son of Jorim, the Son of Mathat, the Son of Levi, the Son of Simeon, the Son of Judah, the Son of Joseph, the Son of Jonam, the Son of Eliakim, the Son of Meliah, the Son of Mena, the Son of Mattathah, the Son of Nathan, the Son of David, the Son of Jesse, the Son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Tirah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Aber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Lord, would you lead us now by your Spirit, so that we might be in awe of what you have inspired Luke to write confident that every word is inspired by the Spirit and profitable for our souls. So lead us, and as we walk through these verses, breathe life into us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, repeatedly, I have said that the historical accounts that Luke mentions in his Gospels, that is the specific times and places and names, they're all significant. Even to the point of leading us to worship. The reason is because Luke is is grounding what he says in human history. So that, thinking back to chapter 1 and verse for Theophilus, and therefore by extension us, we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. And I pray that that would be as true for us this morning as it was true for the Bunamerian people several decades ago. Now, I want to think carefully about our passage and how it applies to our lives. So let's kind of get the elephant in the room out of the way at the beginning. David Powlison, commenting on applying the Bible to your life, says, Genealogies are directly irrelevant to your life. (laughs) Your name is not on the list. The reasons for the list disappeared long ago. You gain nothing by knowing that cause Father Danube, Zobaba, and the clans of Arahel. First Chronicles 4:8. But he says, when you learn to listen rightly, such lists intend many good things. And each list has a somewhat different purpose. Among the things taught are these. The Lord writes down names in his book of life. Now, we know that that's true because of the reference from the book of Revelation. But think about how sobering and encouraging this is. There are many people's names and many people's stories listed, recorded in God's eternal word. Some of them for glorious reasons. And some of them for reasons that should cause us to shudder. God cares about the details of our lives. Further, we can see that families and communities matter to him. It's one of the reasons that We've been reading through the whole lists of names in Nehemiah about people who served alongside one another. These names, these families, the people of God, matter to God. Further, we see that God is faithful to his promises through a long history. It's one of the more amazing aspects of the written revelation of God that it spans millennia and is one unified theme about the great redemptive work that God has been doing throughout history. Just think of some of the names from the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. The faith of his people matters to God as he brings about salvation for them. What Pallison calls the redemptive reconquest of a world gone bad is what God calls his people to. So in a sense, he wants, he wants to record those who are for him and with him and those who are against him. Both of those realities should be sobering to us. And finally, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20. So here is a list in Luke's gospel of a whole bunch of names spanning generations. A list of very imperfect people who failed in many ways and needed a Savior to come. To redeem them from their sins. So, reading a list of names like this causes us to be in awe of the longing that must have been true for the people of God, waiting and waiting and waiting for the one who was to come Jesus, our beloved Lord. Now, Powelson continues you apply a list of ancient names and numbers by extension, not directly. Your love for God grows surer and more intelligent when you ponder the kind of thing this is, rather than getting lost in the blizzard of names or numbers. So as you think about these purposes for which the Lord may have included genealogies, which one is the most encouraging to you? For me personally, it's always been an encouragement to be reminded that God has been actively working out his plan of redemption in the world in a very personal way, far, far before any of the current challenges that we face ever came along. For somewhat understandable reasons, I tend to focus my energies in the present. (laughs) What a good reminder that God has been overcoming these difficulties and demonstrating strength in battle throughout the ages. None of the wicked rulers or nations that have gone before us have ever been able to thwart God's plans. So we can be fully confident that nothing happening in today's world can stop God's redemptive plan. Now. Now. It may be extremely difficult for us as the people of God, as it has been throughout history. But in this, we have hope. Our victory is assured. Now, to avoid getting lost in the name blizzard here that that Luke gives us, let's just set out our main point in front of us and then we'll, we'll work together to see how we drew this out from our passage in context. I think the main intention, the main idea that Luke is communicating here at this point in his gospel is this. The son of God became a son of Adam so he could succeed where Adam failed. It's very straightforward. The son of God was willing to become a son of Adam. Amazing. So he could succeed where Adam failed. Now, as is often the case with biblical genealogies, the first name or names on the list and the last name or names on the list are the ones that are the most important. Therefore, the two most important verses for us in today's passage are verse 23 and verse 38. That's where we'll concentrate our energies. Let's just start off with a few initial observations from the passage. We see in verse 23, that Jesus is a human man and the eternal Son of God, we might say with a capital S. Now, we conclude just straightforwardly and, and plainly, you can see this as easily as I can. We conclude that Jesus was a human man because, well, in the first place, he was about 30 years of age when he started his ministry. I mean, that's a very normal way to refer to people and what they are doing in the world. And we conclude that Jesus is a human man because his, his human lineage is here traced back for several generations. I mean, ultimately, that's in large measure the point that Luke is making here. Now, maybe the most interesting phrase in the whole genealogy is what Luke says here when he says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. I think the reason that Luke mentions that it was supposed that Jesus was the son of Joseph is that he just got finished telling us in the previous verse that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. In fact, even more strongly than that, we have the Father thundering from heaven that this is my beloved Son, and we have the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove and resting on Jesus. This is perhaps the clearest double witness in all of the Scriptures. If you want a character witness or if you want a witness to demonstrate what's true, you you could do worse than having the father and the spirit testify on your behalf. You know, another simple reason why it was supposed that Jesus was Joseph's son is because Joseph adopted him and he lived in his home. For years. You know, the way normal human beings live in a family. So it's absolutely clear that Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the eternal son of God, the previous verse, and that he was a human being. Verse 23. Now. In verse 38. So we're just kind of scanning down to the end of the genealogy, we see that Adam is a human man. We might call him a creative or created and commissioned son of God, right? As opposed to Jesus who was the eternal son of God, there is a sense, Luke says it right here, that Adam is the son of God. But because he was created by God, And commissioned by God. Because Adam didn't have a human father. In that sense. He is the son of God himself. We know that Adam is human further. Because this human lineage right here. Traces out the most important line of his heritage. Just in reverse order. Going out to Jesus. Now. To state the obvious, we also know Adam is human because that's what Genesis 2 says. He was created by God. He was given a commission that is a divine dominion mandate to rule over the entire creation as a type of vice regent, a person exercising delegated power on behalf of a ruler. Now, since Adam's origin begins with God and not a human father, we can say with Luke that Adam is a son of God. We just might say it with a lowercase s. He was created and commissioned directly by God, but did not eternally exist with God as Jesus, the son of God, did, does, and forever will. Now, these are just some initial key observations to kind of frame what Luke is doing here in this particular genealogy. But a lot of questions still remain. A couple of weeks ago, I recorded a a teaching session for the Kenyan pastors where our, our missions team is right now. Uh, And and the focus of it was how to interpret the Bible in a God-centered way accurately. I think our team, if if I'm thinking correctly, they they may be flying from Nairobi to Germany right now. I'm not not really sure. Does that sound right, Keith? Okay. So, Lord, just give them safe travel all the way home. Thank you for their willingness to go. We pray that you would bless in every way, bless their efforts so that... fruit beyond imagination would spring forth among our brothers and sisters in Kenya and in particular through the fountain of hope network oh lord we ask this through the power of the spirit in jesus name <clears throat> but one of the key exegetical steps that i that i shared with the pastors was simply to keep asking the question why of the author of the book. For example, why did you address this issue, Paul, in 1 Corinthians? Or, why did you vary your language here? Or, why did you make the theological argument the way that you did, Peter? Or, or why did you include that specific Old Testament Reference here, John, why? Now, to be completely transparent, in my study, I don't often get a lot of feedback from these guys directly as I'm asking these questions, right? We're praying and asking the Spirit to reveal it to me. But it causes me to think about what questions we might ask Luke about this genealogy. What would you ask Luke? Luke? as it relates to this particular passage. So if you had the opportunity to interview Luke, because that way you're getting some, some real-time feedback, right? What's the first question, the first why question, you would ask him about our passage? Maybe the first why question is, <clears throat> hey Luke, why, why did you include the genealogy at all? I mean, our pastors never skip a verse, so that means we're going to have to preach a whole sermon on this list of names. So, so what are you thinking here? The reason I'm asking, Luke, is because the flow of the story makes perfect sense as it goes from the end of this glorious scene in verse 22 and then... If we just pick up in chapter 4 and verse 1, where Jesus is filled with the Spirit and goes out into the wilderness as he he launches his ministry, that all makes perfect sense. It flows really nicely. Why why did you include the genealogy here? I suspect that Luke would have said something like this in response. Well, it helps to be writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Any other questions? But, but I think he would say, you know what, that's a fair point actually about the flow of the, the passage. The, mer- the narrative would make sense without the genealogy, but, but I want you to think about what I'm emphasizing here. I just shared that incredible scene from the baptism of Jesus where both the Father and the, and the Spirit are commending him. And remember that my point is, that I want people to have certainty about the things that they have been taught. So I was focusing on the identity of Jesus at this point in my gospel narrative. I included the genealogy here as a clear record of Jesus' human ancestry because when Jesus launched his ministry, as, as he will in my gospel here in just just a short period of time, you, you would have been amazed at what happened. You should have seen the miracles. You should have seen the way people responded to his teaching as one who taught with authority. People f- fell down before him. people would see him and just start weeping. and they began to say, Who is this? Who could possibly do these things? So, I wanted to be clear both about the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was a human being with a human ancestry who lived in a family because he was adopted by a carpenter. So say you said, okay, I hear you, Luke. But I have one more question. That all makes sense, but if Jesus is the eternal son of God, and you wanted to emphasize his humanity... Why did you trace the genealogy all the way back all the way back to Adam? And point out that he, Adam, also was a son of God, in the sense that he was created and commissioned by God Himself. So at this point, I picture Luke kind of leaning in, you know, taking a sip of water and saying, Your pastor would be very proud of you. (laughs) That's That's an excellent excellent question. So, let me put it like this to you. The reason I included the genealogy on the front end, that is the front end of the genealogy, is to clarify the identity of Jesus. To show that Jesus did have a human ancestry despite the Father and the Spirit's affirmation that Jesus was the eternal Son of God. Now, on the back end of the genealogy, I wanted the careful observer to notice a different identification. I ended with the phrase, the son of Adam, who is the son of God. The reason is, I wanted the reader to connect Adam with Jesus, not just in terms of origin, but in terms of representative roles and responsibilities. I mean, look at the progression of the thought in, in, in my gospel. The very next scene I describe is the temptation by the devil as he tries to get Jesus to invalidate God's word by either doubting it or acting independently. Of what God has clearly said. In other words, exactly the opposite of what Adam did. So, so let's say you say, I'm tracking with you, Luke. Do your students say, I'm tracking with you, Luke? Sometimes, right? <laughs> let's say we're, in this case we're saying, I'm tracking with you, Luke. But for everybody else's sake, can you just explain why that's significant? (laughs) Can you explain the connection to Adam for for everyone else's sake that might be listening to, to us this morning? And Luke, being a gracious man who spent time with Jesus, says, sure. I'd be happy to for everyone else's sake. Adam was the first person that God made. So Adam was a son of God in the sense that all humans are the offspring of God. Since Adam is the human father of all, you could say that we are all in Adam. He was our representative on earth. Since Adam sinned, as we know from Genesis 3, and since he was our human representative on earth, his sin and the guilt that accompanied it was therefore transferred to every human being after him. And this is what theologians call original sin. All human beings now live under the curse of the fall. This is the legacy of Adam. The biggest problem that humanity has always faced has been Adam's sin and its consequences. Just think for two seconds about this. Just think for a moment about all of the devastation that has come into God's perfect world as the result of the entry of sin into the world. We can, we can scar- scarcely imagine what this world would be like without sin. <laughs> Does that not cause you to long <laughs> for the new heaven and the new earth? I, d- I don't know what it looks like. I can't imagine how we'll spend our time when we're not trying to help, and help people who've been crushed by sin. And its consequences. Oh, but I can't wait for the day where that's in the rearview mirror and we are in the presence of God together without sin. Oh. Think for another moment about the amount of pain and devastation that we all bring upon ourselves through our sinful natures, our sinful natures that we inherited from Adam, our first representative. I I can picture Luke saying, don't think about it too long because it gets really depressing. Right, But then I think he would say, look at chapter 4. That's why I immediately moved to Jesus' victory over Satan in the wilderness before he launches his glorious ministry. I wanted the last thought before that scene to be about Adam, so that you would connect Jesus to him and say, we need a second Adam. We need a final Adam. We need someone who would succeed where this Adam failed. So Luke might say, let me turn the the tables on you a little bit and ask your next why question for you. you. Why is this so thrilling? Why is this such good news? Do you understand what I'm setting up here in my gospel? In fact, my friend Paul wrote a letter to all those in Rome loved by God and called to be saints. So let me just reference his letter because... He explains the representative connection between Adam and Jesus so well. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is Adam's legacy. That's the depressing part. Adam Was a type of the one who was to come. He just failed to do what God had commissioned him to do. But here's the thing this is where everything turns. The free gift is not like the trespass. In fact, let me quote my friend Paul because he describes this in a way that is so good. It's, I'm going to read from what you all would call Romans 5, beginning in verse 15. grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why I told you it was good news. Everything turns there. So, Luke might continue, what I'm doing here at this point in my gospel is setting the table to see that Jesus is the second and final Adam. He is the one who has come and succeeded as your representative where Adam failed. Because Jesus is the representative of all humanity, Just like Adam, the benefits of the righteous obedience of Jesus is available to all people through faith in him. So at this point, I'm just going to take the baton from Luke and I'm just going to lead us home. Do you understand, my beloved brothers and sisters, what Luke and what Paul are saying here? All of the failings, all of the failings of your sin can be redeemed through the righteous life of another. Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of the law, Jesus came to redeem us from our real guilt. And real shame. Jesus came to cover us with His glorious righteousness. Therefore, every harsh word, every condemning statement. Every false judgment, every impure sexual thought, every sinful action, every time you failed to do what you should have done, as a follower of Jesus. As a father, as a mother, as a worker, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a brother or sister in your family, as a brother or sister in Christ. Every time you fail to do what you should have done, all of that guilt And all of that shame has been fully redeemed by the righteous representation of Jesus both in his freely obedient life and through his atoning sacrifice on Calvary's cross on our behalf. A free and a full... And a forever pardon is available to all who trust in the name of Jesus for the salvation of your soul. If you are currently a believer in Jesus Christ through faith in him, this is your new reality. This is true for you now. The fullness of this reality is communicated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. If you've lost someone you care about recently, how much concentrated hope is found in this truth. For as by a man came death, but by another man also has come the resurrection of the dead. It means your heart can be resurrected from spiritual deadness, and it means that because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, one day you will be physically resurrected from the dead and spend eternity with one another and with Jesus, body and soul. With just one thing missing sin. Good. Because I hate it. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive the glory of your salvation is not merely, merely. The the glory of your salvation is not merely that your record of sinfulness has been replaced by Jesus' record of righteousness. More than that. More than that. In Adam, you were spiritually dead And now through the spirit, you are alive in Christ. Your spirit is alive. You have new desires so that you can obey Jesus. You want to get rid of sin. You want it off of you. Because you want to please and honor God. And that can be and is true for any who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Think about it this way with me. Have you ever doubted that you are a sinner? Or have you ever doubted that sin has infiltrated the world or even penetrated your own heart? Has anyone ever doubted that? Me either? Because the evidence is overwhelming. It's everywhere. This is the inheritance that we have in Adam. So I I think this is a rational question. I think this is perfectly logical. If you have never doubted the inheritance that we have received in Adam... and if in every way the inheritance that we have received in Christ is far greater, why in the world would you ever doubt the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus? Where sin abounded... That was our inheritance in Adam. Grace has abounded all the more. That is our new reality and our guaranteed inheritance because of the person and the presence of the spirit that we have in Christ through faith in him. This gospel message... is what frees us from our sin. So for those of us who are believers in Jesus, when we come to see the reality of this truth, the fruit of that is freedom. Freedom in Christ. It is for freedom... That you have been set free. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus, you are free. You're free to obey him through the power of the spirit. And one day we will be free from the presence of sin forever. You will become transformed. Increasingly into the image of Christ as you let that reality seep deep into your souls. That is how we become sanctified. That is how we become more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, our beloved Lord. That is how we become grace dependently holy as our God is holy. Your inheritance of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ is not just about obedience over disobedience. It is not just about righteousness over unrighteousness. It is not just holiness over unholiness. But because Jesus' life has conquered Adam's inheritance of death, you now have resurrection life. You have it now, and you have everlasting life in Jesus through the power of the Spirit for the glory and honor of God. This is the miracle of the good news of the gospel. That the Son of God became a son of Adam so he could succeed where Adam failed. My main point might be the greatest understatement of all time. Let's close with these words from an old Lutheran hymn that says poetically and very powerfully everything that we've been talking about. All mankind fell in Adam's fall. One common sin infects them all. From sire to son, the bane descends, and over all the curse impends. Through all man's powers, corruption creeps, and him in dreadful bondage keeps. In guilty draws his infant breath and reaps its fruits of woe and death. From hearts depraved, To evil-prone flow thoughts and deeds of sin alone. God's image lost. The darkened soul nor seeks nor finds its heavenly goal. But Christ, the second Adam came to bear our sin and woe and shame to be our life, our light, our way, our only hope, our only stay. As by one man, all mankind fell and born in sin was doomed to hell. So by one man who took our place, we all received the gift of grace. We thank thee, Christ, new life, New life is ours. New light, new hope, new strength, new powers. May grace our every way attend until we reach our journey's end. Glory be to the Father, to his beloved Son, and to the most holy Spirit of God. Amen, amen, and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for ministering to our souls. Spirit, thank you for your ministry of encouragement. You provide conviction for sin. And you constantly remind us of the glory and the hope and the saving grace that we have in Jesus. Thank you so much. So Lord, would you now cause our hearts to overflow in song for the hope, that is the living hope, the resurrected hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our beloved Lord. And we ask these things through the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name, amen.